Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tom Maluli. This is episode 228. This is Brendan Maluli, uh, the other co-host. I have a podcast episode that I want to lead off talking about today. This, okay. This was uh, an episode, I think this week, of the Trillions podcast. Oh, uh, uh, the does. Bloomberg, yeah. Eric, Eric Bakunis. Right. Um, and so they, they were recently talking to um, Peter Krauss from Alliance Bernstein, who is is starting this new type of uh, company that, that uses performance fees for mutual funds. And I thought this was a really interesting discussion, so I, I wanted to share a little bit about it uh, to start off today. Uh, but they were basically talking about like this this structure that they're gonna they want to put it out and it's it's performance fees for like active managers because nobody should pay a fee to get a closet index fund because that's why these numbers look so poor for active funds in terms of who beats sure. the index after costs and isn't it becoming more I mean if you're gonna be an active manager like that aren't you, isn't it becoming more like a hedge fund if we've got all these passive funds that mirror these indexes I'm sure this isn't what you wanted to talk about but. If we're going to compensate the active fund managers for trying to beat yardsticks, then why don't you pay them two and 20? The unique thing that they talked about that I liked was that obviously these, these managers are still gonna operate within a framework because like you said, if you wanted like this go anywhere, do anything, just outperform, I don't care. Right. Nobody, like you either allocate to that as like a hedge fund where you give them your money and let them do whatever they want or if you're like an advisor putting together a portfolio for somebody that doesn't really like at least personally for me that doesn't work like if i want to like fill a role in the portfolio i want to know like what you are going to provide me like are you a large cap value manager here is here's your benchmark and like outperform it if you're going to do it if you're going to do it by just like saying you're large cap value and then owning small cap growth stocks then that's that's stupid like I think the problem is for a lot of individual investors, they're going to be chasing the hot ticket. So last year, small cap growth. Why would I want a large cap value guy this year? And so they're going to be- Advisors will do that too. <laughs> advisors do do that. Yeah, so advisors. they're going to be chasing their tail all the time. I think for clients that are sub $5 million, picking that number out of thin air, I don't know if they really want to get specific. I think what they really want, answering for them what they like, but I think it would be better if they had the idea of what an investment advisor is or and what a stockbroker in thought used to be or people thought they were, is a manager of managers. Hey, we're going to have different players on our team. We're going to have a large cap value guy. We're going to have a small cap growth guy. We're going to have emerging market, yeah. right? Uh, we're going to, you know, maybe even drill down into specific niches of the market sectors, but they're not all going to shoot the lights out all at once. We'll have some guys that are in a slump, some guys who are carrying the team, right? That's the way it works. Yeah. That's, um, again, like, I think that that is the way to build a portfolio. And that's where at that level where you're looking to fill a role, do we want to be active or do we want to be passive? But but their conversation was more like compensation structure um, of performance fees has been criticized in the past because it incentivizes the manager to take insane amounts of risk to be an arbitrary benchmark over a one year time frame or whatever it may be, because 
they're not going to get paid if they don't outperform. So you're not going to get what you want. You're going to get more risk than they're going to take risks. And if they don't beat the benchmark, you are the one bearing the brunt of that for performance. And obviously they're not getting paid, but like that's a mismatch. So their, their okay. alternative to that was saying you're going to get a performance fee, but it's going to be paid on a deferred basis. So you have to outperform, like don't get to the fourth quarter of this year and be lagging your benchmark, load up, take a ton of risk, and then outperform for this year and then blow yourself up next February so you can do it all over again next year because then you're just taking double the risk of your benchmark to do crazy crap with people's money. So if you defer it and say, you need to have a long-term approach because we are going to pay you based on performance that actually takes place over a long period of time. And if you're just taking insane risk to get it, we're not going to pay you. And you're not going to get the deferred payment because if you trail the benchmark by too much, we, we're going to be able to tell if you're just like loading up in the fourth quarter for the, for the home stretch because okay. that's ridiculous. On paper, makes sense. I just don't know if it would work in reality because first of all, this is a compensation driven industry. Fund managers, I don't think are going to stay. They're going to, if they, they're going to lose their jobs anyway if they don't reinvent themselves. Okay. These funds if, are closing. If they blow up, if they take a lot of risk and blow themselves up, they're going to be out of a job and they're going to move down the street to some other firm and they're going to start all over again. Hey, I was eight years doing this large cap value strategy. Okay. So a couple of questions come into my mind. Who's going to stick around long term? Because on that side of the ledger, not our side, but for the fund manager side, you're as good as your last trade or you're as good as your last quarter, mm-hmm. right? or even your last year. I don't think that that whole part of the industry is geared for that. And who's going to pay for that? Where's that bonus money coming from? It has to come from the extra cost that you're going to pay. So why am I paying today expense ratios that are higher than normal for a guy who did great last year or two years ago and now he's getting his deferred compensation? I don't know exactly how they're going to structure it, but that's not how I understood it. Like okay. you're going to you're going to pay the performance fee, and they're not going to pay it out to the person until like uh, a year or two or three down the road to make sure that they didn't just do some crazy shit so that they could they could beat their benchmark for a quarter or a year, and and they need to see that performance down the road to make it worthwhile. You didn't tell me there was a vesting schedule. That's what I was trying. It was deferred compensation. I think okay. that's. Okay. That's basically what I was trying to get at. But yeah, that that's how it would work. And I thought that that was interesting because I think it's different when, when you look at what active managers are being incentivized to do today. That's why we have so many index hugging active funds that charge high fees that they don't deserve. Um, and I agree. It's it's not going to be an easy sell telling somebody today who earns whose fund charges one and a half percent and hugs a benchmark that this is going to be the new scheme. But I think that what this guy was saying, he's starting this new thing. I don't think he's with Alliance Bernstein anymore. He was like, we're starting this company because we want these like hungry active managers who want to like do work under this incentive structure. And we think that we're incentivizing them better to than current active man- managers are incentivized to do their job. All right, so let's be clear. This guy is not going to be working for Kevin O'Leary and O'Shares or anything like that. No, no. <laughs> it's just uh, I thought it was a unique that, take. I don't know how much I agree with it or if I would definitely allocate money to these managers, but I think it's the way that he was positioning it, and I think 
Eric and the other people on the Trillions podcast felt similarly is like active guys have to do something. So if they're not willing to move to this structure, they got to start thinking about how they're going to reinvent themselves because these really funds do. are closing down in droves and it's not going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Uh, I, I think for the benefit of our listeners, it would be worthwhile to spend 30 seconds talking about what happens or what has happened in past years when you have an open-end mutual fund that doesn't perform. What happens to it? It could get closed or it could... I mean, we've even seen good mutual funds that have beaten their benchmarks see outflows because of this migration to low cost. Because if you're in some large cap fund and it's not really doing anything much different than the S&P 500, sure, that's a good way for the the manager to just like mask like what they're doing. Like they're not doing anything bad, so they're not going to like blow anybody up and lose the business, but they're also not out there beating the benchmarks. Well, I also think it's important, you know, for individual investors to understand that when you're comparing mutual funds, if there's a mutual fund out there that's been lagging its benchmark significantly and for a long period of time, the fund manager is going to be unemployed. And if it really continues, they're going to close the fund. And those shares will get merged into some other fund in the fund family. And then that whole track record disappears. So when you're talking about mutual funds and you talk about all these funds that can't perform outperform their benchmark over time, what's not included are all the funds that were closed. They're not included in in the studies. Um, that's not to say, and this kind of like ties into another article that I wanted to talk about this week. Oftentimes, this is not to say that these are stupid people or like bad managers running the funds. Of course it's, not. It, their job is really hard when you layer on some costs to outperform um, an index. And I don't know. I think th I think that the way the active industry is headed, there is a role in portfolios, depending on what kind of asset class you're talking about, to have an active manager. But if you're going to pay somebody to be an active manager, you want to make sure that you're paying for and being like compensated uh, in return for what you're paying for active management. And active management, the idea of that isn't that you're going to pay for this active manager and they're always going to outperform. But like you want to know that they have a process and that they're filling a role in your portfolio, and you should you should try to understand when, you know, and when the market when it will or will not be, you know, conducive to their style of management and why you are going to persist uh, through that. Why you're going to continue owning a fund through that if as long as the management remains consistent. And too often it's it's not that. It's just like oh, uh, this this other one's doing better and you know, irrespective of like, yeah, but that's like a small cap fund. Why are you measuring that against the S&P 500 right. or international stocks? It's Hadfields versus McCoys. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, it's totally different. And unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of investors get tripped up. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, like as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, small caps did really well in the last 12 months. Let's move money into small caps. Right. You know, what about buying some things that are out of favor? 
Hmm. What about just owning a cross-section of all of these? Because we can't tell you with accuracy when it's time to move into this or out of that. So let's just own different parts of the spectrum. Yeah, you, you come up with the degrees that you want exposure to different areas of the market, right. and, and that should be based off of hopefully a plan that you're putting together, and, and, and you need to have some reasons why other than just recent performance. But kind of along the same lines, um, sticking with like the mutual fund um, trend here, there was a post, um, this, this was a few weeks ago now, but it was from uh, Jeff Patak at Morningstar. Sure. And it was called Taking a Bath, Lessons from a Big Fund's $9 billion Capital Gains Distribution. Ugh. Um, and so this this refers to um, a specific mutual fund. But before digging in, um, there was one one study that kind of, kind of speaks to one of your earlier points about active mutual funds and how tough it is for them to, to do their job and and outperform over you know regular periods of time. Right. Jeff looked at U.S. and foreign mutual funds, um, institutional level share classes, so the cheapest ones you're going to get, and and compared them to comparable ETFs in the same categories like post post fees and taxes because this article is about tax ramifications of mutual funds, which is okay. a big deal. Uh, so he started with basically 2,000 mutual funds in ni- 1976. Um, after and this was over a ten-year period, so after ten years, fourteen hundred and fifty-one remained. So only three quarters make it through the ten-year period. So it speaks to your point about funds getting closed or merged out right. of existence. Uh, of those funds, you had six hundred ninety uh, six hundred and seventy-nine beat the comparable ETFs before their fees. So that's only thirty-four percent. Okay. Beat a comparable ETF before they charge their fees, which is obviously not right. what people get. So taking into account fees, 501, 25% of, of what we started with, uh, beat their comparable ETF after their fees. And then to take it a step further, if you owned these mutual funds in a taxable account, not tax deferred, and in a brokerage account, 325 beat their comparable ETF after fees and taxes over a 10-year period, that's 16%. Right. That's really, that's just illustrates how difficult it is for these people who are not stupid. They're smart people doing a good job. They just have yep. a lot of things working against them here. Yeah. Um, and that's over a reasonable period of time. I'm not saying 10 years is the long term because I don't think it is. But for the, an individual owning a fund, 10 years feels like an eternity. Sure it is. For some people, ten minutes is an eternity. Right. To to move on to like the the bigger point. So this this article was specifically about this Harbor International Fund, which I I know it well. Right. Um, good fund, and and Jeff highlighted that that this fund is sitting on four and a half billion dollars in unrealized gains, or was before this. That that is reflective of good management low turnover and yep. a long-term approach which are all things that you want exactly what you manager. want right? you want all of those things that's right but when you own this mutual fund and it has these unrealized capital gains it has to do things like like this year the fund has seen it's seen outflows over the last couple of years like a lot of active funds but they also decided to change management this year for whatever reason didn't mm. really look into that too much but Combine those two things, and it's it's paying out twenty three to twenty seven dollars a share in in distributions this year, oh. which is thirty eight percent of its NAV. Wow! 
And so these are, if somebody owns this in a brokerage account, these are, you know, taxable tax. This is a taxable event for them that they have to own this year. And they're being basically punished for sticking with a good manager with a long-term approach uh, to international stocks. Before we get into the other points of this, I just want to point out to individual clients or investors who get this, uh, understand this in a taxable account, what happens? Uh, you get the $27. Was that the distribution? Yeah, between 23 and $27 a share. So you're getting this large distribution. Right. Uh, I mean, 38% of the fund is being distributed to you. You're going to get a 1099 that's going to show this capital gain. If you're reinvesting it, it gets added to your cost basis. Right. But you still have to pay the taxes, even though you did not do anything. You've right. been sitting still with this long-term investment. You got a, it's a significant, it's going to be a significant yeah. tax bill. And, and obviously, so like you alluded to, the, the, the benefit down the road is that you've paid out a large part of this. You have a higher cost basis. So when you do make that sell decision to move on and do whatever you want with your money, um, you're not going to have as much of a taxable gain then because you've paid it along the way. You've been paying along the way. Um, but the idea of not having control over when to recognize those taxes oh. is tough because you may not want to pay the taxes on this year, but if you own the fund, you don't really have a choice. That's painful. Um, I mean, conversations we have with some of our clients that have taxable accounts are like, I can't sell anything anymore the rest of the year. Don't sell anything hmm. because I'm, I'm already paying too much in taxes. Wait till next year. Yeah. I mean, we've got one hand tied behind our back when that happens. Right. So in this case, this is a mutual fund that no one's expecting. I mean, unless it's, you know, people like us that are in the business and we read this stuff or Jeff who wrote about it. There are ways on. And so some of the things he talks about are obviously that ETFs do not have this issue. So in a taxable account, it may be better to find if you wanted international stocks to find an ETF that accomplishes the role that you were looking to fill in the portfolio as opposed to an active mutual fund. Right. Alternatively, it's not as if this information is like it's not, not a, it's can, not a secret. You can go you so like if you bought the fund right before this like you know, shame on you kind of or your advisor because like you can find this stuff out. Right. It, so he was like, look, if you're going to look for an active fund and you want to own it in a brokerage account, as uncomfortable as it may be, the best time to to do that in a taxable account may be at like during or right after a bear market because sure. these people have probably racked up losses that they can use to offset gains. You can also look for funds that have good management structure, like people doing this kind of stuff, a long-term approach that has just been out of favor recently because they're also going to have losses to pair with gains that they are going to have in the future. And they can use that to not have much as much of a tax burden on the end investor. So I know that we have uh, disclaimers and disclosures wrapped around this podcast, but I think it's important to mention that if we're talking about a mutual fund, we're not soliciting orders, so we're not sending anybody a prospectus. No, I mean, this is. I just thought it was a good example, and Jeff kind of used it as a case study in his post um, for Morningstar. I, I liked it, and I thought it illustrated a good point that we talked to. Sure. With, uh, investors about all the time, which is, you know, these these tax advantages of owning uh, an ETF um, in a brokerage account. I mean, yeah. cannot yeah. be uh, overstated. I don't think. Right. When the fund manager wants to ring that bell, it's really. Oftentimes, it's not even their choice. It's like yeah. if they're seeing outflows. If they're getting they're requests for redemptions. They gotta go. Yeah, and at some point, if they are using 
losses, if they're being, they're obviously going to be intelligent about how they sell. They're going to pair gains and losses to the extent that they can, but eventually you reach a point where you can no longer do that and your only choice is to sell right. appreciated assets. You have to sell some winners because if you have redemptions, it is what it is. You know, that kind of raises another point totally in a, on a, out on a tangent, but something that we don't hear enough about and we usually only hear about in a crisis point is we talk about how these mutual fund managers will pair gains with losses to try and manage the tax hit to the mutual fund shareholders. But along the same lines, when the markets are in a panic, you know, if you've got clients that are on margin or they're trading with razor thin margins, not that they're on margin, but uh, usually the first things to go are not the worst investments. They're the most liquid things first, mm. which are usually the best investments, which is, it sounds counterintuitive, but when you need to raise money in a hurry, you're not going to be saying, okay, I need to throw away this bond position that only trades by appointment. I can't get anybody to bid on it. So what else am I going to sell? Well, I'll have to sell all the GE in the account because it's the most liquid thing and it's down for the year. Mm -hmm. And they're just throwing stuff away. Yeah. And this is what we see in these you know these runaway markets on the downside is that they're going to throw away a lot of the good stuff uh, because they have to raise cash mm -hmm. to meet redemptions or to just have cash on hand. Yeah. So a lot of good stuff gets thrown away. Yeah, and so I think uh makes me think of like these people who say that the next time the market crashes, it's it's going to be worse because of like index funds somehow, as if active managers don't also have to indiscriminately sell when they face redemptions. Like, sure. so if somebody's entering like a sell order on their their mutual fund, their active mutual fund, what's the difference between that and them going to the market and selling their their shares of the S and P five hundred? The active manager probably owns most of the same stocks in similar proportions to the S&P 500 anyway. So the selling is going to be there regardless. Yes. Uh, it's just the vehicle people are going to do it with. So people people that I maybe have been losing assets to ETFs or otherwise threatened by them, I think like to demonize them a lot or, or even just index funds in general. They get index funds and ETFs get like lumped together and said that they're going to somehow like cause a market crash, which I think is just ridiculous. I think the concern for... Uh, folks in the industry is the unknown number of I, this is such a terrible phrase hot money traders or portfolio folks that are sticking money in a big index like spy spy that's the s p 500 etf or the Nasdaq index, the Qs. Mm -hmm. So how much hot money is actually in those? indices and you know when they want to pull the trigger and and raise cash or you know otherwise move on you know how much of that is going to be up for sale it's a good question i know you don't know the answer to this but i'm gonna ask anyway but like where in the past was that money was it just like did it not exist like was it not just in the stocks themselves or in like an active mutual fund so like there was there's hot money there's been hot money going back since the beginning right. of time so i'm i'm not sure that like sure they're they're gonna sell and it's gonna sell like if they're selling spy it's gonna sell it's gonna send the s p 500 down because they're selling the stocks that make it up but like they would be selling something regardless and it would probably have ramifications on the index anyway that's right it? so yeah 
It's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, I just like I don't know how much I buy that that's going to be. I'm sure people will make the case. I just I don't think. Oh, we'll read it. stories about it. That's a guarantee. Yeah, like ETFs caused the market crash or something. Like yeah. you should you should own my uh, precious metals mutual fund instead or some ridiculous garbage that's backed by cryptocurrency or yeah something like that. Yeah, and you know leveraged with futures and options. Right. <laughs> Okay, that's going to wrap up episode 228. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you on the next uh, podcast.